We're approaching a new year, so on the programme this week, a chance to reflect and look back and discuss some of the main talking points of 2017. I'm hoping that in early 2018, we'll get some sort of direct steer as to which way we might be headed, certainly in terms of trade talks, whether we have a deal or no deal, hard Brexit or soft Brexit, it's all going to impact on our businesses. They'll still be allowed to use it in other parts of the world and the food that we're importing will have these products you know, being used on them and it quite clearly, Sean, is not right. At the start of the market year was buoyed by Sterling's weakness post-Brexit vote and that's been a big factor in our pricing structure for the season and looks like it may well be going forward as well. The Year in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Good morning. There have been many talking points in agriculture over the last 12 months, some on a reoccurring theme such as Brexit, the weather and of course glyphosate neonics and uh, lack of actives and and that's where we're starting today. Back in November the DEFRA secretary Michael Gove revealed he was changing the government's stance on neonicotinoids saying new research showed it is harming pollinators. Well at the time you might remember we asked Spalding farmer Mike Neverson onto the programme as he'd sent a letter demanding answers from Mr Gove. Well just before Christmas He finally got a response to that letter, so he's back on the programme. Mike, just recap the aim of the letter back in November. Yeah, well, the the aim of the letter was twofold, really. Well, about two separate issues. Um, One was um, the withdrawal of neonicotinoids, um, and the other was about glyphosate. Now, since I wrote the letter and since I sent it, um, glyphosate's obviously been reapproved for another five years, um, which is a result of thoughts. um, And... The sort of the reply that I've had from Michael Gove um, to the letter that I sent um, is mainly about um, the uh, use of neonicotinoids and the you know the proposed withdrawal of them. And, and what did he have to say? To be honest with you, it's what I sort of expected um, from the letter. Um, it's um, a ref- you know refers to uh, some page you know some scientific papers available online, um, which uh, you know outline the government's you know scientific advice on on the matter um now most of them are to do with foliar applications of uh neonicotinoids which obviously you know most of you know in flowering crops um and i think i don't think any of us are arguing for that what we are arguing for is to try and keep the seed treatments um of non-flowering crops which are so important to uh, a number of industries but you know f- f- of the crops that 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 we grow, um, sugar beet is the main one. Yeah, so it kind of missed the point of what you were asking then, really, didn't it? I uh, guess. It, it, it did, really. I mean, there was, another, there was a number of, of different points in, in the letter um, from, from Michael Gove. Um, the, the main one or the, the main one that I sort of took was the last paragraph, actually. Um, and, it, and it says that, basically, that, that the UK is going to vote for the withdrawal of neonicotinoids across the whole of the EU... Um, so trade with EU countries, as you know, by its nature, won't have um, neonicotinoids applied to it. Um, but it, it then goes to say, got on to say that trade with uh, non-EU countries who have applied neonicotinoids to that crop will have to apply for an import tolerance um, for that. Now, I'm I'm not an expert on this, but I suspect that means that there won't be any trade restrictions with countries who are still using neonicotinoids and who have a, you know, a, a significant advantage um, to our own production in the UK. 
So again, it's kind of a two-tier system, isn't it? We can't use it ourselves. Uh, Europe may not be able to use it, but other countries will still be using it, and that will be coming into the country. Yeah, I'm, so I'm not. An, I'm not an. I'm not an expert on it, and I, you know, I haven't unfortunately had you know had a look at the, what the import tolerances actually say. But I, but I think that's that last paragraph of the letter is is um, you know is another way of saying that there won't be any trade restrictions. So how do you feel going into a, a new year? Is still as scratching our heads about it, I suppose, are we? Yeah, I mean, I mean to be honest with you, I'm not. This letter that I've received from Michael Gove is, is more or less exactly what I was expecting. And, and to be fair to him, it's good that he's replied. You know, it's signed by himself, so um, it, it's good that, that the ministers had, um, you know, had a chance to think about it and reply specific to the letter. But there's nothing in in the reply which is, you know, revolutionary. I don't think, and, and nothing that I wasn't expecting. My concern is that these seed treatments are, you know, are, are very important and, and withdrawing them, realistically, is it going to have any effects on improving bee numbers or pollinator numbers? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, if, we, if we're of, of the position where we keep withdrawing, you know, very useful um, and, and, and safe pesticides from the market, then, you know, we get into a position where we, you know, we're, we're reducing production. Um, and surely it would be better for the environment for us all to devote a certain percentage of our farms, um, you know, for the, for the benefit of the environment, rather than farming our whole area badly. Or, you know, not badly, but reducing our production on the, on, on a, on the rest of it. Mike Neverson there, he farms out near Spalding, though he's actually now in the Antarctic, working for the British Antarctic Survey, driving cargo across the Ronnie Ice Shelf, supplying the remote scientific camp there. Well, it's uh, one way of seeing in a new year, isn't it? Uh, back in the warmth, Lednam farmer Andrew Ward is with me, listening to what Mike had to say and that response from Michael Gove. Andrew, we, we've spoken many times before about neonics. What, what do you make about that final paragraph in the letter that Mike touched on, hinting, while banned in Europe we could still import products with neonicotinoids from elsewhere in the world. That, that can't be right, can it? It can't, and this is the problem. This is exactly the issue that we've got, that we're banning it um, in, within Europe and you know other, other active ingredients that are banned, yet they'll still be allowed to use it in other parts of the world, and the food that we're importing will have these products you know, being used on them. And it quite clearly, Sean, is not right. And I don't really know how we're going to get round it at the minute. And I think if, when we come out of Europe... Um, we need to start looking at it because we're obviously going to be rowing our, rowing our own boat uh, in, in that situation then and we need to look at it but there is big issues within food production at the moment and within uh, the safety or the potential um, safety of these products that, that we're using because they are all safe, they've been through rigorous tests and at the moment I, it's interesting in January uh, through Twitter um, I've actually got a, a Green MP, she was leader of the, of the Green Party um, I've got her Natalie Bennett coming to see me um, I offered an invitation through her on Twitter after we had a bit of a, a, a discussion and a disagreement over uh, chemicals, as you can imagine. And she's actually, which is great, all credit to her, taken up my invitation and she's coming to the farm in January. And I've asked her to bring whoever she wants to bring. I said, I've nothing to hide. I'll show her whatever she wants to look at. So that should be an interesting interesting meeting. Talking to the environment there, of course, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, everything winds down, doesn't it? It's, uh, you know, the festive period, the New Year period, everything stops. But a lot of work still 
taking place, particularly agriculture. And one thing you're doing at the moment, of course, is cutting the hedges. Yes, that's right. And and, and it's like you, you say, Sean, it, it is something that never stops farming. And it's a year long. It's a year long job, even on an arable farm. And and we haven't got any livestock. And of course, livestock farmers don't have much of a Christmas day. They don't have much of a, a, a Christmas period because animals need looking after. But luckily with arable, uh, we have a little bit more time. Um, and at the moment, as you say, we are cutting hedges. And it's amazing to see the wildlife that we're seeing in our margins because we've got the six metre and eight metre grass and wildflower margins around every field. And I'm pleased I've got that. We, we, we finished our entry-level scheme that those were in um, about a year ago, so we haven't been paid for any of these uh, margins around the farm. And out of the 660 hectares that we farm, we have 24 hectares of wildflower and grass margins around every field. And the partridges and pheasants that are in here and the hares and everything that's in these margins protecting themselves from the weather in the winter is, is colossal really and at the moment um, my chap's going around we're cutting the hedges at the moment as we say and the songbirds as well there's a huge amount of robins we've got around every field and all the songbirds that are pecking up the berries off the hedge and it's quite uh, surprising and quite reassuring to see that all the work we've been doing over the last 10 years of having these margins is actually really paying off and, and of course in the summertime they're full of bees they're full of butterflies they're full of insects so all the birds can forage around in these areas and I think it's an important point to, to note that we're not just out to to sort of farm every single inch of every field that we've got we do have to think about nature and environment and wildlife and this is one area that, that we do it and it's pleasing to see the results. Maybe new technology is the answer as well you know you're talking about a particular sprayer that can can really target weeds now that the way technology is going that's that is the future isn't it oh there's there's no doubt about it sean it's very interesting my father always says to me that he doesn't think that we'll see the revolution and the changes in agriculture in the next sort of 20 or 30 40 years that he's seen in the past 50 years and and i just think we will because in the last five years we're now looking at robotics and drones have come into play and I actually think, Sean, the technical revolution um, in agriculture actually started probably, you know, two or three years ago. And it is gaining momentum all the time now. And this spray that we've just been talking about, you know, being able to target weeds in a field and just switch on and off and actually alter the rate through an individual nozzle as you're passing over the field is remarkable to think that that technology is out there now. Um, and it just needs fine tuning. But the technical revolution that we're, we're now sort of in, I think, is gathering pace. And what we're going to be seeing in the next five years is just alarming. And it's uh, it's colossal to think that we're going to have these massive changes. And to think that five years ago, a lot of these things, a lot of the things we're looking at now, didn't exist. But the technical revolution is here, Sean, and 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 it's a case of get on the back of it quick because if you don't, you get left behind. Fair to say, it's been um, an uncertain year, hasn't it? Very uncertain. It has. We've got grain prices all over the place. You've got to make the most of markets. Um, weather, you know, weather is all over the place as well at the minute. We've had a, a very frustrating September. We had rain uh, every day apart from four days in September. That rain didn't amount to much. It was only like half a millimetre here and 0.6 of a millimetre, two millimetres. But it stopped us combining and, and our harvest period was the longest we've ever had at, at over 60 days for our, our area which is is ridiculous really but it was just the weather um we've sold 80 percent of our, our wheat is sold because I, I think the world markets at the moment and the supply 
everywhere you look, the the, the grain mountains, as as you as you like people like to call them, or uh, the oversupply is there. Um, and there's there's a massive amount, I think, of grain available in the world. And I don't think grain prices are going to rise much over the next uh, next few months. So I've sold 80% of, of my wheat for this this harvest that we've we've got in store now. Harvest 18, the, the crops are in the ground. I've already got 30% of that sold as well. So I think um, looking forward, um, I know what my cost production are. And uh, we're about £110 a tonne for spring wheat, winter wheat and spring barley this last harvest. Um, and so, um, you know, at current prices of about 140 for January, there's a decent margin in there. And I, and I think it's more likely to go down than go up. So that's just my view and not, not a grain merchant's view. We'll see, we'll see. Any other hopes for, for a new year, prosperous new year? Hopefully? Yeah, I, I think um, the Brexit job's interesting. We have got absolutely no say in what's, what's happening there at all. We, we have, yes, we can, we can put our point across and try and hope that, that the NFU and, and DEFRA and the government listen to what we want. Um, but it will all come into, into play in, in five years' time, I think. It will take us that long to get the whole job sorted. And we've just got to make the most of every opportunity. You know, with every, I always say, with every challenge and every every situation, there's an opportunity out there. And uh, we have to be, you know, be on board and, and make the most of those opportunities and take advantage of them because there will be plenty of opportunities going forward for farmers in the country. Everybody needs food. We have to look after the soil. You can't go out and buy more soil. You can't just go to the supermarket and buy some more soil. We're losing arable land under houses at an alarming rate and farmers are going to be needed even more going into the future. So I think it's a case of, of uh, get, on, get on there and do what we can and make the most of the opportunities that are, are there. Andrew Ward there. It'll be interesting to see what Natalie Bennett makes of it all on that visit. We'll update you on that in January. Well, Andrew touched on prices, admitting he's not a grain merchant. Thankfully, I know one. Every week, of course, we bring you an update on grain and oilseed rape from the team at Openfield. And Chris Spratt is with me this week. Hello, Chris. Well, Sean, this week I just thought we'd have a look back at uh, 2017 and, and try and put together some thoughts for 2018 as well. And as we know, the start of the market year was buoyed by Sterling's weakness post-Brexit vote, and that's been a big factor in our pricing structure for the season, and looks like it may well be going forward as well. Uh, 2016 old crop wheat prices, uh, i.e. from January through to uh, July, August this year, well, they rose eventually to reach import parity as the supply and demand tightened up towards the end of the season, so the market finished strongly. As far as 2017 harvest is concerned, well, that started out well uh, as far as combining was concerned, but unless you'd really got everything in the uh, in the barn by Bank Holiday August, I think, really, uh, it turned out to be a long-drawn-out affair for many, um, and certainly some of my uh, growers uh, ended up uh, having one of the lo- longest harvest periods that they'd ever had on record. As far as yields were concerned, well, things were very, very variable. I think also rape's probably been the pick of the crop. Uh, as far as wheat's concerned, well, what we have seen there, that's we've seen some large regional premiums because of the strong domestic demand and no exportable surplus. And in actual fact, I think it's probably the largest regional price variation I've seen in over 30 years of trading. As far as highs and lows for the 2017 crop are concerned, well, if you'd managed to sell your May 2018 wheat on the 11th of July 2017, then well done to you, because that's the current season's highs when futures peaked at 159.75. However, 
Going back a little bit further, Brexit vote day 23rd of June 2016 pinpointed the lowest trading level on May 18 wheat futures at £129. So around about £30 differential over the course of the season to date, uh, with this year drawing to the close somewhere between the two. This year, the world wheat was expected to have harvested some 753 million tonnes of wheat, of which the UK represents about 2%. World's biggest producers, while China, 130 million tonnes of wheat, followed by India at 98 million tonnes, and then Russia in third place at 83 million tonnes. Some big figures compared to our 14.5 to 15 million tonnes. Internationally, prices have been very low, so UK prices, you could argue, have been in a Brexit bubble. Year on year, we've seen an increase in world wheat stocks to 268 million tonnes from last season's 255, but an overall decrease in corn stocks from 227 to 204 million tonnes. Overall, if you put the wheat, barley and corn stocks together, we've seen around about a 15 million tonne reduction compared to a year ago. Nevertheless, we shouldn't forget some 40 to 50% of those stocks reside in China. It's debatable whether they would come to the wider market if any significant issues arose. China continues to make acquisitions, buying agricultural businesses, whether it be farming in Africa, building export facilities in South America, and even buying vineyards in France. Uh, now very much a force to be reckoned with in the agricultural world. In Russia and the Ukraine, well, they still had no bad weather impact in their harvest now for the last five years. And we do continue to ask ourselves what happens if they keep producing like this, or indeed if they have a poor year, as they're now such a big influence on setting the world market price, and just as importantly, can their infrastructure cope? Feed barley for me has been the star performer, the only global crop production to reduce overall. Saudi Arabia is now paying more for feed barley than human consumption wheat can be bought for in some parts of the world. World production of barley is down in 2017 to 142 million tonnes from 147 in 2016, effectively reducing stocks now down to 18 million tonnes. Hence the narrowing of the barley uh, discount to wheat, even given the strong domestic wheat price in the UK. And then just a quick look forward to 2018. Well, as always, in agriculture there's more questions than answers. The focus this season has been on domestic wheat demand in the UK and the debate of the crop size. Uh, that certainly will start to make a bit of difference one way or the other as we get to the end of the, the season. And a strong finish to this marketing year would no doubt help set the tone for next year. And, of course, as we approach the new year, the timing and flow of grain to the market will be pivotal and we'll see if growers around the world continue to hold the crops given their lower prices or will they take the lead and sell the crops, yeah, putting indirect pressure on our pricing structure through in cheaper imports. One of the other points that will be interesting for 2018, will, will we see any more uh, opportunities for bread-making wheat? We've had a rather depressed bread-making wheat premium in the first half of the season, but we now know we've got a lower full-spec pass rate than we had in 2016, and no insurance is on quality for the 2018 crop still to be harvested. And just a quick word on malting barley. Supply and demand's been tight in 17 and will be going into 18 with minimal stack stock carryover for the next season. It'll be interesting to get a picture in the new year of how the planted area uh, develops for this season's crop. But no doubt the main talking point will be the focus on preparation for terms of trading and farming policy post-Brexit. Certainly this is bound to have some impact on the 2018 crop pricing structure as we run into the March 2019 deadline. At this stage, I think the more information we have, the clearer the picture should become, I hope. But I think we'd all like to see the rules of engagement as soon as possible, then we'll know how to play the game going forward. Because as we know, growing food crops needs time and careful planning. And in actual fact, on that serious note, Sean, I'd just like to wish you all a happy and prosperous New Year from all the team at Openfield. And I'm now off to eat the last of the mince pies and walk the dogs. I don't blame you. Have a good New Year. Chris Spratt from Openfield. 
Brexit has understandably dominated this year, and I'm fairly confident it'll do the same again in 2018. But is agriculture ready for March 2019? Mark Leggett is NFU County Chairman for Lincolnshire. We need some knowledge, we need some facts on which to base our, our planning for the future. At the moment, um, we, we, we just have no steer, and I'm hoping that in early 2018 we'll get some sort of direct steer as to w- which way we might be headed. Certainly in terms of trade talks, whether we have a deal or no deal, hard Brexit or soft Brexit, it's all going to impact on our businesses. What kind of planning should farmers be doing with that March, March date looming ever closer? We've got to become low-cost producers. We've got to keep our, our own uh, fixed costs under control. We've got to be ever more inventive in what we do to secure an income. And if that means collaborating with neighbours and fur- partners further afield, then that's what we've got to do. Uh, supply chain arrangements are all very creditable and worthy. By reducing the supply chain, cutting out the middleman, there's more money available to the producers. So it's actually it's not just one single item that will secure our success. It's a whole multitude of them. And it's actually looking at the, every facet of the business, how we grow it, where we sell it, how we sell it, and so on, and make sure that financial planning is prudent and that perhaps we're not at risk. We heard today that over 50% of farm businesses have no borrowings, and we heard that those businesses will be much better place to go forward when opportunities present themselves than businesses which have probably got a high debt burden at the moment. And are farm businesses prepared, preparing for Brexit? I think we are. I think... Um, if you look at current invest, reinvestment levels in kit and equipment, we're a bit fearful for the future. I know on our own farm we've, um, we, we pulled an investment because we're worried about where the future might be taking us. And I think when, once we know, we'll be better placed to, um, to re-equip a, a, and replace equipment. I, heard, I was talking to a friend this morning who farms uh, over in, in Herefordshire, and he was saying that commercial grassland farms over there are virtually unsaleable at the moment, apart from the hobby buyers, because they're very fearful what the future would be for red meat in particular the lamb and and mutton industry at the moment there's a uh, £2,700 a tonne tariff on sheep meat going into the EU from third country from from countries outside of the EU and we post Brexit we will be placed in that situation into that category 40% of our sheep meat is exported and 60% of our lamb go go to Europe. So uh, the the livestock industry are fearful of their future and the the arable producers are also somewhat concerned but probably less so because we've got a greater domestic market for our core, for our wheat, our barley and our oilseed rape than perhaps the sheep and beef sector. And I think the other thing is that skilled labour is going to be increasingly short supply. So as a business I've got to look at innovation and technology or increasing the size of my equipment to get more per day from the, from the man I have got. We employ some gang labour uh, on a potato grading line during the winter months. The skilled labour know that they're in value, that know that their skills are transferable throughout Europe and they're going where they can make their best living. And with the pound being devalued against the euro, they're actually a lot of them going back to Poland, uh, back to the home countries. And we're hearing that the retention rate of skilled workers has gone down from um, 72% two years ago to only less than 48% now. And that's a key worry because it takes a lot of time and effort to train up somebody to do a job to a high degree of proficiency. And to have those workers go home and take those skills with them means that we are continually having to train up new people. We've also heard today that perhaps the educational level of some of those workers coming into the UK from Europe 
and outside Europe at the moment is not what it used to be. In fact, we heard about poor literacy rates. That's not good when you're putting people in charge of complex pieces of machinery or high-capacity grading lines. There still has to be an element of skilled labour with the academic ability to operate it. How are things more generally in farming? Generally, I think it's been a quiet year. I think uh, things are a little bit downbeat. Uh, certainly my own farming experiences I, I grow vining peas which didn't actually perform very well this year that's nearly a fifth of my acreage didn't produce me much of an income uh, potatoes there's a lot of potatoes out there this year prices are rock bottom and securing an order is quite hard um, but there again in the cereal sector those who didn't forward sell their grain have seen an uplift in prices which has been very welcome and that's mainly due to currency fluctuations and the pound becoming weaker against the euro so my particular sector, I'm a bit downbeat. I'm actually, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not reinvesting too much in the business this year because the money's not there. But people in the combinable crops and the oilseed sector, um, they probably, if they haven't forward sold, seen a nice uplift in prices uh, with reasonable yields this year. So it's a bit of a mixture. Some sectors are doing quite nicely. Some are just having a year out. Hopes for the new year then a more optimistic outlook. Yes, uh, I think crops are going in the ground very well this year. We've had a very open autumn to get the work done. I think the prospects are, well, they're looking, looking good. Um, forward pricing on cereals is actually £10 a tonne um, ahead of where we are this time this year. So I think actually there's a, for people who can lock into those, want to lock into those prices, there's actually a good opportunity to show a good margin on combinable crops. Um, I think uh, other sectors, hopefully potatoes, it'll come right. Um, the peas were a one-off. Um, in general, I, I think things will be better next year. That's Mark Leggett, County Chairman of the National Farmers Union. Well, of course, the NFU will have a new president come February. There are a number of contenders already declared and probably a few others thinking about it over the new year. Uh, there could also be a wider government reshuffle too. Will Michael Gove stay at DEFRA? What will happen with Brexit? RPA, milk prices, the all-important weather, so many questions, no answers at the moment. It's really hard to say, and I'm not going to make any New Year predictions or indeed resolutions, except for one resolution. If it happens in agriculture, we will bring it to you each and every week here on The Farming Programme. And it all starts again this time next week. Until then, from all of the farming regulars and myself, have a very happy New Year's farming.